This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. It is the Sunday Social and you are live and listening to Omar Pazar, our wonderful host, and he's going to take over from me right now. Good morning and welcome to the Sunday Social. Uh, we are here to talk about embedding practice in teaching, why and how. And I'm joined today with a fantastic Tamina Begum, uh, who is the executive head teacher of Forest Gate Community School, um, Cumberland Community School and UTCN. Um, she brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. We're here to uh, be excited about her insights in learning. So please guys, grab a cup of coffee, sit back and join us for an in- enlightening discussion on teaching and learning and remember we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions so feel free to join us um today on teacher talk radio here right now feel free to call in you just have to send a request if you have something that you feel like you want to talk about um good morning tamina morning omar thank you for having me today i'm looking forward to it Thank you for joining. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your background uh, and experience in education, please? Uh, Yeah. Um, So I work for Community Schools Trust and I am primarily based in Forest Gate Community School. uh, But I do oversee currently I'm an exec head overseeing Forest Gate, Cumberland Community School and UTCN. Um, Before this role, I was head teacher of Forest Gate Community School from about 2019. Uh, just before that pandemic hit. Um, And before that, I had various roles within Forest Gate Community School um, that included head of English, um, assistant head teacher, uh, deputy head in charge of professional development, teaching and learning, uh, appraisals, all of those things. Um, And I am an English teacher by trade. Okay. Um, Obviously, we're, we're from very different disciplines. Um, I'm a pure, pure science person here. Um, if you had to, do, if you had to choose an animal to best represent your teaching style, this is a bit of a weird question here. Uh, what would it be and why? Ready. Um, an animal to best represent my teaching style, Omar. Did you say? Yes. Um, you put me on the spot there. I have no idea. I mean, I can tell you all the animals that have disrupted my teaching. <laughs> it is. Um, all right, let me let me let me ask you a bit of a different question, just just to get to know you a little bit. Um, what's your favourite um, activity to do outside of school? I like uh, watching good movies, uh, a good theatre show every so often. Um, I mean, I I sound really boring and it's something that everybody does, I guess. But I do like to eat nice food outside, you know. Um, I used to, this makes me sound more interesting, but I stopped and maybe I'll start again. I used to um, weight train. So that was quite good. 
Oh wow, that's actually quite interesting. Um, I I don't actually like movies, so I think I'm a bit more boring than you, to be honest. Um, I'm really, I just can't sit down in the cinema. I just find it a really pointless activity. But that's just me. Um, but I don't mind theatre, though. I think that's quite interesting. Um, Good. So let's get on to the topic today. We're here to talk uh, about teaching and learning and all that exciting stuff. And obviously you come with a, you're like an encyclopedia almost. You come with a, a wealth of knowledge. So um, my first question to you is, what are the key elements in a school environment that can lead to an improvement in teaching quality? The key elements in a school environment? Well, I think you need, um, you need a body of knowledge uh, that includes domain specific knowledge. Uh, it, inc it needs the right culture. But when I talk about culture, I mean people doing the right things so that the culture prevails, the right culture prevails. Uh, you need a shared language um, around what you want to achieve as a school. And you need the, the right people, the, the, the key stakeholders to be aligned in the vision. So what I found is sometimes in, in some schools, teaching and learning might sit with the person in charge of teaching and learning, like the, the lead, the assistant head or the deputy head in charge of teaching and learning. And it's regarded as their thing. Um, and it's not necessarily echoed or shared by the head teacher or overtly um, shared by them. And I think that dampens or um, impedes spreading that right culture across the school. I think it's, it's such an important part of establishing or raising standards in a school. It should be up there with something like safeguarding, which we know is extremely important. Uh, but I think it's equivalent to that because both are absolutely crucial in the, in achieving the right outcomes for our students. I hope I answered your question there. Yeah, that was a fantastic answer. I do want to, um, Paul, to, you mentioned um, domain-specific knowledge. Um, where where does this knowledge come from? Like, So let's say you're in charge of teaching and learning. How do you know that the knowledge that you've selected in terms of what the teachers need to know, how do you know that it's, 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 it's the best knowledge and, and it's going to provide the best teaching quality in your schools? It's a good question because that knowledge appears to change over the years, doesn't it? Um, we, we go for a kind of best bets approach, I guess, um, and being attuned to the best available evidence at that time. And I think that's um, that's as far as we can go. That's the best we can do. Um, evidence is constantly changing. You know, once upon a time, many of us in the audience and beyond will remember uh, certain practices in our teaching that was extremely popular and back, backed by evidence. And then it transpired, it was completely wrong and bogus. And I talk about things like, you know, learning styles, etc. Um, but we talk about being evidence informed, being attuned to the changing evidence or it shifting um, and staying attuned to that, really. So in our school, we've got, you know, lots of schools base their teaching strategies on the likes of Rosenshine, Hattie. You know, we, we look at the work of Dylan William, um, Doug Lemov and, and those kind of people, because at the moment, the evidence suggests that those are the best teaching strategies that allow the best outcomes for our students. But it's important to stay attuned to that. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, by the way, uh, side note here that um, Dylan William was actually the f like inside the black box was was like the first book that I read that like really kind of changed my practice and really yeah. I felt like it really moved me forward. Um, is there any practices that you've used and you've uh, now you look in hindsight and you're like I can't even believe that I even did that. Like I can't believe I wasted my time doing that type of practice at the time. Oh, Omar, if I listed all the things I used to do, it would make me look really bad. So I say this with caution, um, <laughs> but m m what I'm going to put out there is I don't do them anymore, okay? I promise I'm a better person <laughs> for it and a teacher for it. But um, just just linked to what you said, uh, the Inside the Black Box books was my first book that I was given by my mentor and he said to return it to him and I never did because I really liked it that much. <laughs> Uh, despite that, and that was early on when I was train when I was a trainee, I um, did all sorts. So I did the group work carousel thing, where I had to. Um, I was really good at PowerPoint animations, right? When in my training year, um, and I was obsessed with it. So I'd stay up for hours uh, playing around with transitions, uh, sound clips. Um, I used to do timers on animation. So I, I taught holes a book. Uh, in, in English and um, if I set a task for I don't know five minutes I would have the lizard which is a feature in the book move across the screen and it would take five minutes to move across the screen and I would ex take the time to explain this to my class guys when the lizard reaches the end of the screen that's when your task finishes I thought it was well clever and my students would watch the lizard for another 30 seconds or so, debating whether it's moving or not. Think about how many seconds and minutes cumulatively lost because of a stupid thing like that. I mean, I had a lot of fun with it, but I don't. I think I missed out on a lot of learning over the years because of it. So that was one example. Um, I used to do like thought tunnels. I don't know if you've heard of that, Omar, thought tunnels. No, I've not heard of that. So I'd get the class up and I would make them stand in two rows facing each other and then join arms um, and then one person would have to walk through that tunnel and shout out their thoughts as a character so you know they were kind of understanding characterization and things like that again it, it was really like it was a cool activity in my mind um, but I don't know how much learning was done in that and by how many um, so those are two examples. I mean, there are loads more, but I, I, I fear my credibility if I carry on listing them. Um, <laughs> but of course, over time, I've learned that there are much quicker or faster ways of getting that knowledge across um, to all my students, as opposed to one or two. And probably, I've, you know, s sped up the time it took me to plan those activities as well in that in doing so. Yeah, I do think that there's, uh, I mean, uh, Pets McRae talks about uh, in, in lean, um, is it lean lesson planning? Um, yeah. He talks about, you know, m when you're setting a task out, you want to make sure that how much time you put in, how much you're getting out of that. And sometimes, like, I think even in that book, he mentions um, 
that there was this lesson that he used to do where he used to like play music at different times or something and it was just whilst on the surface it looked really it was a really fun activity it took him really long to plan like much longer than all the other lessons to plan and actually when you look at what the students actually gained out of it it wasn't really like worth his time if he just kind of stripped it down to the basics and just focused on the learning at heart um i just do want to take a second to say um that um, Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs caters to the needs of all learners regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learning language knowledge, uh, sorry, learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable knowledge or so content okay so i'm just going to um so we, we, you've mentioned um that obviously in a school you need to have the right type of culture you need to have a shared language aligned vision and it needs to be echoed through the whole school not just through the person that's in charge of teaching and learning yeah how do you actually go about that because that sounds like a really really heavy task so how do you go about implementing that I mean, yeah, it's a comprehensive kind of thought process at all levels, I guess. But the, the, I would start off, especially if you if if you're in a position to um, affect change or affect things from a structural point of view, and those who are leading, that you know, usually they sit in a leadership position in the school and have close proximity to their head. Um, if you can affect things on a structural basis, the other things that you want to achieve, um, whole school, is a lot easier. So I'll give you an example. So um, I was, you know, I, I was very lucky to be able to lead teaching and learning, um, which which the head teacher echoed at the time. So you know, Charlotte Whelan was the head uh, when I was a deputy head. Before Charlotte, it was Simon Elliott, and they very much believed in. Um, the, the vision and they what they did was they agreed with structural changes that um, I suggested or we came up together so one of the things that we did particularly in the last three years actually so when I was in charge of Forest Gate we moved Twilights uh, which was about three hours on a Friday afternoon once a half term and I, I know lots of schools have this model three hours or two hours on a Friday afternoon after school um, once a half term Everybody wants to go home. They want the weekend to come. And then they come back on Monday having forgotten or going back to their you know, normal routines in the classroom. So what I thought was actually learning doesn't happen like that. We know that. We apply it to our students. Why don't we apply it to ourselves? So what we did was we moved away from those kind of traditional insets or twilights and we disaggregated that time so that we had short, sharp, frequent CPD sessions throughout the half term so we have them now on a Tuesday afternoon every other week for about half an hour Um, no one minds sitting for about half an hour Um, we have we base each session on a very specific strategy that is based on our evidence informed framework that everybody is aware of and has agreed to um, and that half an hour goes really fast because we talk about what that strategy is. It's very focused. We look at what a good one looks like. So, you know, we're creating those mental models of good. We discuss high frequency errors 
because we're normalizing the fact that hey we're we're all capable of falling into those errors because that's just the way our jobs are but also it makes us more conscious of not committing them and the last 15 minutes we get up and we practice that specific strategy that we've talked about so it's a safe space there's rehearsal there which is a key mechanism of an effect of, of what makes good professional development programs according to the EEF and then we go away and we do it in the classroom um, and so on a structural level that's quite important so I always say if you can affect things on a structural level it means that you you allow more time to focus your energy and your attention as a school and as stakeholders in the school on the right stuff so one of the other things that we did on a structural level as well is you know, re-looked at the meetings that we have across our schools. Are they all really, really important? Are some meetings easily done in a bulletin where you're communicating kind of admin bureaucratic things? Um, can we realign them, some meetings to be more teaching and learning focused instead of disseminating information? Um, I've got rid of kind of performance appraisals in, in, in our schools. Again, that took up time, that took up energy. There were certain pressure points linked to performance appraisals, formal lesson observations linked to those things as well. Again, all things that took people's attention, time and energy away from thinking hard about their craft in the classroom. And we were nervous about that one as a school, getting rid of PMR, um, because, you know, again, it's a, a traditionally very important, high stakes, structural thing. Um, however, what we what we did was we thought hard about the rest of the systems that are in place to to maintain the standards in the classroom. And we found after a year of not having PMR, the sky didn't fall down. So it was a good move. So I mentioned on a structural level, disaggregating twilight so that they're not two hour long once a half term but short sharp frequent half an hour slots it's time for a fresh start to language learning pearson edexcel's new student-centered french german and spanish 2024 gcses cater to the needs of all learners regardless of their background ability or reason for studying Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports on the lack of suitable childcare for children with special educational needs and disabilities, particularly over school holidays. The report features data from the charity Quorum, which shows that only one in 20 councils in England say there is enough childcare for SEND children during school holidays. In some areas, including London and Yorkshire, there were no councils with sufficient childcare available. Parents of children with SEND say that in some cases, they are unable to work because of the lack of suitable childcare in holiday periods. 
Others expressed concern at the significant change in routines brought about by having to spend the whole summer at home with parents. Coram conducted similar surveys in Scotland, where no councils reported having enough childcare for children with SEND. Similarly, in Wales, there was a lack of adequate provision, with only 5% of councils saying they had enough suitable places. In a different survey by Contact and the Disabled Children's Partnership, covering 1,800 parents of children with SEND, 9 out of 10 said they were not able to find a suitable holiday club or activity. While there is a legal duty in England for local authorities to make sure there is sufficient childcare available for parents who want to work, up to 14 years and extended to 18 years for parents of disabled children, it does not have to be paid for by the local authority. This means even where childcare can be found, the costs can be prohibitive. A spokesperson for the Department of Education said the government is investing £300 million to test new approaches to short respite breaks and that holiday activities and its food programme help children from low-income families over the holidays. The Guardian has focused on plans to limit the number of students taking low-value degrees in England, a measure the paper says is most likely to hit working-class, black, Asian and minority ethnic applicants. Courses that do not have a high proportion of graduates getting a professional job, going on to postgraduate study or starting a business will be capped. Vice-Chancellors say the measure could act as a red flag putting off students who may feel the course will damage their life chances. The numbers cap is unlikely to affect the bulk of courses offered by Oxbridge or Russell Group universities. The government appears to have moved away from applying minimum entry requirements for school leavers, which had been floated as a way to control student numbers. The changes are unlikely to help improve the financial position of English universities either. They have seen tuition fees frozen at £9,250 per student since 2017. Inflation has eroded the value of fees and many institutions say they now lose money for every UK student. Schools Week reported on the release of SATS results, focusing on the repeat problem faced by many head teachers, actually getting access to them. This was despite government promises that the previous issues had been ironed out. Multiple error messages appeared and when many tried to access the primary assessment gateway, they got messages which included one saying that the system was currently unavailable due to planned maintenance. Last year, schools faced issues with late results, lost scripts and an unanswered helpline. But a lessons learned review in April said robust tests had made sure similar events would not happen this year. Schools Week has previously reported on technical issues which delayed marking by a week and complaints that pay rates had gone down again. Capita has a £107 million contract to deliver the assessments in a seven-year deal which began last year. Meanwhile, other media outlets focused on the attainment results themselves, which show that it remains significantly lower than before COVID and that they've changed little since last year. The proportion of tenant... 11-year-olds meeting the government's expected standards in reading, writing and maths combined remained at 59%, the same as in 2022, down from 65% in 2019. Results in reading were down to 73% from 75% in 2022, but this year's paper triggered mass complaints from parents and teachers 
saying it had left some pupils in tears. This year's cohort had the majority of Year 3 and Year 4 disrupted by the pandemic. Finally, Sky News broadcast a wide-ranging interview with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. One of the topics covered was absent pupils, with Ms Keegan saying that absence levels were now a crisis. She went on to say that she would pick them up myself when asked the best way to tackle the issue. When questioned as to whether collecting pupils was a good use of school leaders' time, she said, they do have a duty. We all have to play our part. Sometimes you have to go to the home. However, a spokesperson for Number 10 did not repeat Ms Keegan's comments, but did state different schools will take different approaches. Ms Keegan's comments have been met with derision from many teachers who took to social media to point out that it was just one more thing teachers and school leaders were being asked to do. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Yeah, so I talked about kind of affecting things on a structural level if you're in the privileged position to do so, so that you can we can realign our efforts and our focus on all things teaching and learning and thinking hard about our craft in the classroom. So I mentioned disaggregating twilight time, um, realigning or reducing uh, meetings that can be made into other things um, and looking at other aspects like PMRs which are high effort low impact if you can affect change in that way Um, you know you said something and it really strikes a chord with me because I was literally thinking the same thing like five weeks ago or something like this like when it comes to education, when it comes to how people learn, like a lot of teachers are basically experts in this. Like we know how people learn, but it's really weird because when it comes to CPD, is like, or even on, on a personal level, like when it comes to your own CPD in terms of how you want to like research and find out more about education, is like we don't follow the same steps. Like we know how people learn, but we don't follow the same steps. So um, in a traditional kind of inset day, it is a long, like three hour long mm. session. 
um, and it's just someone talking to you. And we know that that it, that isn't the best way for people to learn. Like if you're teaching a classroom, you wouldn't do it in the same style. Um, but my question to you is, um, how do you? So you obviously you said that you have short, sharp, frequent kind of sessions on on uh, and and you try and focus on teaching and learning um how do you judge uh the success of this and how frequent is this yeah so that's a good question how do i judge the success of it i judge the success of any cpd session in the practice that i see afterwards so i always and and that's really hard to achieve right and in my years of kind of being in charge of cpd and other people who are in charge of cpt will, will attest to this they often kind of hold their heads in frustration wring their hands when they see that you know they've done this great session everyone's really positive about it they've got you know they've got involved they really enjoyed it and then the next day they go into classrooms or and they don't see what they've just had a whole session on practicing um and they're kind of, you know, they're frustrated. Why aren't they doing it? Why aren't teachers doing this? Why we we spent ages on this? We gave training. We provided support. Um, we sent it out. What's happening? Um, and it's a fair thing, right? It, I can see the frustration. But actually, it's the the idea of embedding practice. It's one of number one. It's one of the key mechanisms that I mentioned um, from that report from Education Endowment Foundation where they look at what makes effective professional development. <clears throat> they, so they talk about kind of building knowledge, you know, imagine, managing the cognitive load, uh, revisiting prior learning, which is what you just mentioned, Omar. Like we, we learn like students learn. It's, in the science of learning isn't specific to young people. We all learn like them. And so we should think about how we're um, disseminating that knowledge, not in three-hour sessions, but in sh in the way that we will learn. The other mechanism they talk about is um, motivating staff. So thinking about setting and agreeing goals, you know, providing information from a credible source. That's why we've got an evidence-informed framework. Um, we should look at what the evidence suggests. Um, the third mechanism that they talk about is developing teaching techniques. So thinking about kind of your instruction, your modelling, the rehearsal that I mentioned, the social support. That's why we sit in teams and we practice together and the last one which in my opinion is the hardest one to achieve uh, which li links to your question omar is embedding practice how do we move from um what we receive in training to what we're actually doing and in the report they talk about how to embed practice providing prompts and cues um action planning thinking about how you monitor um, and prompting context-specific repetition. So I look at that in the context of, you know, your subject specialism. Um, and I always say, and I think about myself, the success of my CPD is what I see in the classroom. If I'm not seeing it in the classroom, I've not been successful. I could have done an amazing PowerPoint and been really energetic on stage, but that's nothing if I don't see change in the classroom. However, we can't expect to see that immediately. What we need to think about is, okay, what are all the different things that you can do to embed that practice? It is not good enough just to deliver a session. What's your follow through? Um, what what midweek nudge are you going to send out? What um, great practice are you going to capture really quickly to secure success early and often, which is one of the levers of uh, motivation that Peps McRae talks about um, 
you know, what, what, what's your monitoring like? Are you going to um, pick up on something that's not gone quite right later on after someone's embedded that into their practice? Or are you going to be really quick and quietly um, pick that up and provide the support that's needed? And that can't be done by one person. It's got to be done by a core team of people who can help you embed practice in those different ways. Okay, um, uh, I just want to want to mention here that, um, that we have quite a few listeners. Um, if you do want to join the conversation, feel free to send a request and, and we can open the mic for you. Um, you said uh, that uh, you changed the school on a structural brace- basis and then everything kind of fell into place. Why might other schools not have the power to do this or why might they not be doing this? Um, well, I think they, they, uh, the only thing that I can guess there is, you know, well, different things. Um, what I mentioned earlier, if your head or your leadership aren't aligned with th- this vision of teaching and learning and affecting change in the classroom and your craft, uh, they're not aligned with that on a in a meaningful way, meaning they're prepared to change things that aren't quite working or could be better, then it might be difficult. You know, so if my in my experience, I was able to move twilights to disaggregate them over time because um, those uh, um, above me agreed with it or said, hey, Tamina, you know what? It could be a really good idea. Let's try it and see how it works. But I guess that won't happen if those who can support you affecting change like that um, can't see that or are afraid to make those changes. Having said that, though, you know, it's not impossible um, to affect change of, on a classroom level if you don't do those things structurally, uh, but it will be harder. Um, thank you for that. I just want to uh, just say that um, Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSE is catered to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying rooted in learning learned language knowledge their assessments are transparent accessible rooted in learned language knowledge uh, sorry uh, accessible allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and reliable content um i i did want to pull back on something that you said um you said you mentioned shared language why is shared language important in teaching and learning and how does it contribute to the quality of, of teaching? It's an interesting one. Shared language is important, right? Because um, if I, I'll give you an example. If I said something like, um, I was giving feedback, right, to your lesson, Omar, and I said, uh, Omar, if you, and it was a really great lesson as it is. Um, one thing that I, w- I noticed was if you if if when you gave that instruction um next time make sure that you tell the students how to do that task uh, meaning did you want it in silence did you want it in groups in pairs um, and you need to tell them how long to do that task for because those things weren't clear right that took me about 15 seconds to tell you that bit of feedback but if i just said to you omar um when you did that task, you needed to make your means of participation clearer. Um, in a school where everybody understands what means of participation means, which is how you do a task, so how long it takes, the condition, what the task actually is, you know it immediately, you understand it, 
So I took means of participation. It's a, it's a term from Teach Like a Champion. But what it means is, number one, it speeds up what you're trying to say. When you say something, those who share that language know exactly what is expected of them. They know what it means. It takes far fewer seconds. Uh, but secondly, because it's a shared language and we both and we all understand what it means, there's a sense of in-group. You know, it's, it's, it's the language we use in our organisation. We know what we're talking about. And that kind of um, in-group idea links to, you know, ideas about belonging and... Um, and and motivation uh, which which links to that as well so i think that's quite important motivation belonging and all of those things link to well-being and actually when we're talking about our craft in the classroom and what we do as teachers what is the thing that we love doing above all else is being teachers you know being with our students in the classroom and so all of those things for me are really intertwined and there are key levers in that that we can pull to affect um, the right things. Um, thank you for that again. Um, now, you have a huge, let's say, I mean, in your case, you have three schools that you're you're currently overseeing. And um, obviously that, that contains not only a numerous amount of staff, but also a numerous amount of, uh, numerous amounts of students as well. So... You mentioned motivation. I think I think it's got to play a huge role in this, right? Because you have a whole body of people that need to be motivated um, to do what you're essentially asking them to do. Um, so my question is, how does mo how does motivation uh, factor into quality teaching, and what are some effective ways to motivate both the students and the staff in the school? What was the first question I asked? Sorry, I wasn't listening like a bad student. <laughs> I, I didn't check for understanding um how does uh, motivation factor into quality teaching is the first part of that question right so if i start off with um the the mechanism of motivating staff that i mentioned earlier from the eef so they they say you know setting and agreeing goals the evidence suggests if you can if you can set a goal that is linked to time and location you are twice as more likely to achieve the thing that you set out to do. Um, it's probably why half, most, the majority of us don't achieve our New Year's resolutions. We talk about it, but we don't really peg it to time and location. Um, they talk about presenting information from a credible source. So I mentioned, you know, the evidence-informed framework or um, ideas from credible sources like that. And they talk about providing affirmation and reinforcement after progress. So do we... Um, capture people doing the right thing fast and and share that and therefore reinforce that or do we let people get on with it and you know it kind of die in the ether because no one really notices what's going on and actually one of the uh, levers of motivation securing success early and often that I mentioned earlier um, really looks into this idea of okay you know in the classroom when it when a student does something good and expected of them or they really try we should um we should acknowledge it right we should notice it quite quickly we should provide praise and when we do that they're thinking hey i've been recognized for this i'm I, that feels good i'm going to do it again but as as adults it kind of works the same way so if i've really tried hard on perfecting my cold call and i'm someone who's really got into the habit of kind of um picking a student first and then asking a question or asking a question and allowing no wait time or think time 
And after a CPD session that has taught me, you know what, Tamina, you need, you've got into a bad habit. This is actually how you're meant to do it. Question first, provide that thinking time and then pick a student. And I have um, intervened in my bad habit and I've made an effort and actually my cold call is much better. I'd love for someone to notice that. Even though I'm not doing it for the recognition, actually, we all like that. We all like that recognition. Um and so what kind of mechanisms do we have in place in our schools that facilitate capturing those things to support the motivation of staff? Um, so in, in kind of in our, in, across our schools, we've got teaching and learning teams, which comprise of essentially your, your very enthusiastic staff who are very passionate about teaching and learning. We call them hype men because we're really cool like that. Um, and, but basically, these are staff members in the school who are kind of naturally very passionate about teaching and learning. They get together, they talk about, you know, what makes great teaching. We have weekly sessions with them, but they're critically thinking about what's going on, how to unpick it, and how can we further embed that practice where it's not being embedded properly. But what they do, which uh, serves that kind of motivation lever, is they go out and then they capture the good stuff uh, in their own kind of remit. So I've got someone from every subject, if you like, from every level. So they're not just kind of um, middle leaders or senior leaders. You've got your trainees in this team. You've got your um, main pay scale teachers. You've got middle leaders. You've got senior leaders. Um, and that's really important. And actually, it's quite specifically done. So when you're assembling your hype men, your teaching and learning team influencers, you've got to think about, who, who they are, you know, usually they're your early adopters, the people who are naturally quite excited about perfecting your craft in the classroom and all of that. But again, like, who are your winnable veteran teachers? Those ones who traditionally sit at the back of a hall in a CPD with their arms folded, rolling their eyes, saying, here we go again. Can you win them over? Because usually they're the ones who are, are quite good, you know, in the in the in the classroom. They've also seen it seen it all before. Um, they they bring a lot of value to the table, but they're cynical and and they need the right person or people to win them over to say to them, "Hey, you've got a lot to add here. Uh, you're very influential, and we can learn from your practice." Uh, who are they? Can you win them? Who naturally gets excited about teaching and learning? These are your champions um, that you need to assemble. And when you do, what you've suddenly got is a team who can go out and among their own teams capture the good stuff, the people who are perfecting their practice and deserve that recognition. And when they do, they need to share it. Not wait until the next CPD session, not wait until the next twilight, which is a half a term later. They need to capture it in the moment there and then. So we've got a good culture of kind of um, those team members and, and their colleagues uh, capturing sh short snippet video examples of a really good cold call or really great example of um, intellectual preparation, backwards planning for a lesson or whatever it is that we've just had a session on um, whole school and on a department level, and they share it on a WhatsApp group that we have. Um, so I, I've got the uh, pleasure and privilege of being a part of five WhatsApp groups, teaching on WhatsApp groups across our five schools. And all day long, I'm seeing just uh, incoming short snippet videos of amazing efforts for perfecting our craft in the classroom. 
And that is infectious because someone else sees it and thinks, oh, isn't that great? So-and-so is being recognised. You feel really happy for them. But then you're also thinking, hey, science are getting a lot of praise here. I want English to get the same. So I'll go away and look out for um, really great English practice based on a session that we've just had as a school. And then I'll capture that and I'll share that. And it grows and continues. So building a team of your hype men, getting them to capture the good stuff early and often serves as motivation for teachers across. And that kind of celebrating is very successful. Um, on the other side of that, for me and for anyone leading teaching and learning, that kind of content is very good data for you to pick up on things that aren't going quite right so that you can use that to inform your next bit of CPD or your next kind of focus for perfecting in terms of craft in the classroom. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite interesting, um, the, the, the references that you made to kind of the classroom, because I do think there's quite a lot of parallels like between um, how you run your classroom and, and, and how it works in the classroom to how it could work on a whole school kind of level. Um, you've mentioned Teach Like a Champion and obviously there's so many routines that you can embed um, across the school level to make sure that all the teachers are kind of um, doing the same type, have the same type of routines. Um, and, and in motivating um, staff, one of the aspects uh, that leads to motivation is actually people feeling, you know, good at something because it, it actually does play a huge role in in people being motivated. If they feel like, OK, yeah, I can actually do this. That does uh, create a, a, an intrinsic motivation to keep keep at it. My question is, you know, when you've got loads of routines, we know you, you don't chuck loads of routines to a classroom, let's say, in one go. Um and and obviously you wouldn't do that in 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 your teaching and learning strategy. But do you think it might be difficult for new members of staff that might be joining a school that has so many different um, teach and learning strategies and so many different things that they need to pick up on? Do you think this might this might be something that could be uh, more difficult for them to be motivated? Or, or and is there a system to kind of get them up to speed? fast with the rest of the staff that are already there yeah do you know what it's interesting you say that Omar in my experience right new staff who've who've joined um I'm I'm acutely conscious of how many things that people have to pick up when they join our schools in our trust there's a lot I get that um interestingly my experience new staff members are the best at picking up the routines and the expectations we have in the classroom faster than some of us more veteran people who've been here forever um and it kind of makes sense because they're they're not they're it's new for them and so they're very very conscious about perfecting that and and achieving that over time we've got a playbook a teaching and learning playbook which we've kind of uh, built and crafted over time it includes the evidence-informed framework that i mentioned so straight away for them that's their kind of um pegging point they know that's that that's what they need to refer to um and then we've broken down that playbook and, and that framework into plays if you like so high leverage uh teaching and learning plays or things that they need to master in their practice so i took kind of uh, inspiration from the walkthrough series um and um, other things that i've seen 
and there are five step walkthroughs of how to do a particular thing. So for example, uh, the entry into lesson, that's a play. There's five steps to do that really, really well. And those five things, those five steps are granular. They're very, very specific or concrete in nature. Um, they're pegged to a high frequency error we often make. So for example, we stand at threshold, the door when we greet students and say good morning to them. The high frequency error we might make as a teacher is uh, we don't stand at the threshold because we're busy loading up our PowerPoint at the front of the classroom hidden behind a computer. And so uh, I've kind of designed it based on high frequency errors, um, the opposite of that, what that looks like. And it has to be really concrete. So it means someone who is kind of building, trying to master that play can coach themselves so they can identify for themselves. Oh, yeah, that's the, the bit, the step that I missed this time that I did it. I'm going to really focus on that next time. Uh, but it also facilitates coaching of others. So if I'm an, an instructional coach for someone else, it makes my feedback to them really meaningful and achievable because I'm basing it on those steps in those plays that I, that, that I mentioned. Uh, so yeah, it's a lot. But the, what, what I've tried to do, and I think what is a, um, a sensible approach, is look at your kind of high leverage basic routines, whether that's behavioural routines or instructional routines. If you can focus on those at, when, when you begin, you're doing kind of 50% of the work because most other things will come together or be put in place if you master those kind of basics of a classroom. Um, I cannot think about domain specific like subject knowledge, the, the how well my explanation is um, or how good my, mod my live model is if I am having to think about that child who's speaking in the front or that kid at the back who's thrown a chair at the other one. Um, and so mastering those kind of basic level behavioral instructional routines is really important. Yeah, I think I think I think that make, that's a very good point. Would well, have thrown a chair across the class is quite extreme. I think no one could concentrate in that type of yeah. environment. Uh, so, uh, we have uh, Fabian Daruk, uh, who's made a comment in the in in the chat. Guys, feel free to make comments if you um, if if there's something that you uh, wish to add. Also, you can always request to join as a speaker. Um, it says. Um, uh, it's, it's actually addressed to you, um, Tamina, and it says, I heard your points raised. Um, I agree that if we are leading CPD and the audience returns to existing or negative habits, it indicates the effectiveness of our CPD. We must be honest with ourselves by following up on how our CPD is used afterwards. So he's, he's very much in agreement there. And I, I do have to say that I, I think, again, it's, it's, it's akin to when you check for understanding as a teacher as well you know um if i'm a teacher i need to check for understanding to make sure that the students have understood what i've just said and in in the same regard if you're running cpd across a whole school and uh, um you need to check have they actually understood by seeing it in practice um in person you've mentioned that you have a playbook um and i think uh, essentially what you're saying is it kind of follows a hub model of leadership which is where there's one kind of thing that everyone can follow and refer to um and it doesn't lead to a broken kind you know like if you follow a linear model one person says and by the time it goes all the way down to the teachers from the person at the very top it kind of 
is a completely different message. Um, yeah, to, to I mean, it, yeah, it standardizes quality. Like, gonna, I, I don't want to go back to the days where someone gives you feedback, right, based on something that they see in your classroom. But it's you, you listen to that feedback, and you think, where has that come from? It's not based on anything. Who are you? You know, you question their credibility. Um, you can totally tell that this person is in a bad mood or they don't like you or those all kind of... Uh, it, that used to exist back in the day, didn't it? And it depended on who it was, what time of day it was, what part of the week it was, whether it was moxies and all of those things. And actually, if you can realign that and make sure that feedback is meaningful... And the only way to make it meaningful is make it objectively linked to evidence and a, a shared framework that everybody has agreed to and invested in. You are standardising a level of quality that everyone deserves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Now, obviously, we've been looking at stuff as a whole kind of school. In this, in this particular case, a, a multiple school kind of mindset. But... Um, obviously, in, in one school, there's different subjects and, and these need very specific kind of CPD, subject specific CPD. So what role does a department CPD play in, in, in let's say, meetings or, or, or in your teaching and learning team? And how does it contribute to the professional development of the teaching staff? So it's a, it's a really important factor. The best kind of CPD is when it is subject specific. Uh, and we've kind of, the, the trust has been on a bit of a journey with that. So, you know, a good few years ago, we, we did start off with an evidence-informed lesson framework that allowed there to be a kind of real, a real shared language. Everybody knew what we were talking about when we said certain things. We very much used techniques or strategies from Teach Like a Champion. Um, it was just easier. You know, people understood what we were talking about when we said certain terms. Uh, it allowed us, as a result, to focus on what I mentioned before, bagging those basics, those behavioural and instructional routines, getting our entry, our exits right, um, being seen looking, um, standardising the time it took to do things like turn and talk and paying attention and all of those things. What that meant was, once we'd mastered that, and by the way, we haven't mastered it. It's an ongoing process. But once we'd got really used to that and it was an embedded part of our practice, it freed up time for us to think really hard, therefore, about our subject and how, how, um, how we can improve our subject knowledge and our delivery of that subject knowledge. Like I mentioned before, if I, if I, if my class are coming into my classroom screaming and shouting, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes at the start of a lesson sorting that out. When actually, in an ideal world, I want to spend the first 10 minutes focusing on some kind of memory retrieval, which is linked to my curriculum. So we had to, it, you know, it's a journey. So we had to kind of bag those basics first, really um, support and embed those routines that minimize the what of the the how of learning and maximize the what of learning which is our subject uh, and so now um what we're really focusing on and we've done it for the last year couple of years is intellectual preparation which is basically thinking hard about our lesson delivery in a subject specific context context um so we've had the model of whole school cpd where i mentioned we focus on a strategy we get up and we practice it, etc. But those sessions are then followed by a department meeting. So in that department meeting, that whole school strategy will be re-looked at 
in a subject-specific context. Um, and the head of department would lead that. So that empowers our middle leaders, those who are driving our curriculum and our outcomes for our students and their leverage that they have over their departments and their teams. Um, we've kind of notched it up a bit with this idea of intellectual preparation, where we take one very specific um, aspect of our curriculum, something that is traditionally really hard to teach or we, we notice a lot of high frequency errors in that subject. So, for example, in English, um, we've noticed that, you know, English teachers have really different ways of um, unpicking a key quotation or uh, in a large team with varying levels of expertise and experience, uh, English teachers for a given topic might pick um, quotes that might not be the highest leverage quote to pick for something that they're meant to teach. If we want to align that, intellectual preparation session is a really good forum to do that. Because what I'll do if I was if I was leading that session is pick the best quote or best thing that I know traditionally um, could be aligned better. And then I would uh, teach the team how to deliver that thing. Um, in science, Omar, what is traditionally a really difficult topic to teach in science? Oh, um, you put me on the spot there. Um, I think it does depend on the subject specialism of the person. Like, I might particularly find equilibrium quite a difficult, uh, with Le Chatelier's principle, quite a difficult yeah. lesson to teach because I'm not actually a chemist. Yeah. Um, but someone else might find, for example, conservation of momentum quite a difficult concept to teach um, if, if, if they're not a physicist, for example. Right. But even actually as a physicist, that is quite a difficult topic to teach. Great. Actually. So you've picked two there that actually when I've spoken to scientists before, they've, they've mentioned those things. Another one they've mentioned is um, electrolysis. Traditionally, like a HOD would know, right? A subject specialist will know. In my experience, these are the things that are really difficult to teach or we get it wrong or it's too varied. An IP, intellectual prep session, is a fantastic forum to um, align that practice and teach my teachers um, how to teach that thing really, really well. And in doing that, what you're doing is you are delivering subject-specific CPD, you know, and you're making that playbook that I mentioned much, much more meaningful because you're skilling up your teachers within their domain. Um, and all of those things combined... Um, hit those the components of expert knowledge that peps mccray mentions in his latest book developing expert teaching that's my third reference to him can you tell i'm a fan <laughs> yeah <laughs> um now actually when it comes to for example cpc subject specific cpd in science um i know there's like a lot of kind of things it's like often people say science teachers talk a lot they add a lot of extra facts in um and that kind of comes under the redundancy effect i mean who said science teachers like to talk a lot i don't think i like to talk a lot although i i run a i host this show so probably i do actually like to talk a lot um and and actually one really big uh, thing that often science teachers do um poorly i would say is they love to just chuck a huge definition on the board without breaking it down prior to kind of that definition and then students are like it's like me saying randomly learn this random word in in this random language and 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 let's say for example turkish or greek i said learn this random word learn the whole definition okay what is it what does it mean mm. it's like it, it's difficult and i think i think it's very important to have subject specific um cpd for that particular reason um you've 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 mentioned the term intellectual prep 
And just for those people that are are listening, there might be a few people that don't actually know what that means. Could you just tell us what what that term actually means? Uh, yeah, so I, I took it from someone. I can't remember who I took it from. And most of the things that we do, I've stolen it from somewhere. But um, essentially, it means thinking hard about less your lesson delivery in a subject specific context. So, um, you know, the, uh, uh, kind of a general technique. It might be cold call. Okay. Uh, if I was to make that subject specific, I would peg it to a particular topic that I would teach in English literature for a year 10 lesson. And I would link it to a checking for understanding uh, aspect of my lesson that I've identified and only a subject expert would be able to identify that would be meaningful uh, to their knowledge in, in that lesson. So basically making those whole school routines and um, uh, strategies subject specific but how you would deliver that uh, in a subject specific context okay uh, um, uh, I, I just want to so let's say in terms of in terms of your um, teaching learning kind of strategy across the whole whole school that you might try to embed um, is there like a core kind of knowledge that you identify that this is kind of what um, your your curriculum should kind of entail, and uh, yeah, is is there like something that that you kind of think okay, this is this is what I'm focusing on, or, or this is kind of the core knowledge behind what we do. What do you mean in terms of uh, the CPD program? Yes, yes. Um, it so it depends, right, on on the school and the context of that school. So. Like it's really it's fascinating for me working across different schools because they're they're at different points in their journey. Forest Gate Community School, you know, it's a very established school, it's top fifty in the country for progress for the last six years, number one in the borough, outcomes of plus one, more than plus one. I my approach with that school will be really different to um, a, a school like uh, Cumberland a couple of years ago. Uh, which was, you know, it went from RI to good recently, uh, but it was the, the outcomes weren't as good. Um, now it's 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 gone from minus pre-pandemic to 0.6 uh, in the last year, which is fantastic. So, but they they are on a tr huge trajectory um, improvement journey, and I couldn't lift the approach or the strategies that I had for Forest Gate and apply a blanket to Cumberland. And again, that's really important. And, and it's listed in the EEF's report on effective professional development. Taking in, We need to think about, with care, taking into consideration the context and the needs of the, of the school. Uh, so where I could like throw in a, a far more complex routines and expectations of uh, teacher behaviours in the classrooms at Forest Gate, I needed to strip it back when we first introduced this at Cumberland and think about um, basics, uh, um, achieving the basics of behavioural routines and instructional routines in the classroom. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, I could jump straight into kind of the nuances of live modelling at Forest Gate um, because I knew that the prerequisites were there. The prerequisites of live modelling would be, you know, attention attentive behavior from the students um the positioning of the teacher they were used to where they were meant to stand when they were doing that um on a more kind of operational level knowing that every teacher had a visualizer with a little visualizer table 
they, they, all those prerequisites were there. Whereas in another school, if those prerequisites aren't there, you have to think more carefully about how to build that up. And um, where you make that mistake and you don't, it's very difficult for teachers on a, in a different part of that journey to feel successful and you're almost setting them up to fail if you don't cater for those prerequisites. Um, so when we think about designing a CPD, it has to be really carefully done, taking into consideration the particular needs and context of a school. Having said that, I wouldn't lower my expectations. And that's a really easy thing to do if we're trying to cater for the um, different points in a journey of a school. So, for example, I would not um, not expect a staff body in any school to be able to embed a basic behavioural routine if that is something we've all said, hey, it needs attention. Um, I would not expect... so. I mean, I hate to get into the argument on, on slant, but that is something that we've put, you know, we've embedded across our schools. But I, w I wouldn't have said to, in any school, in any of our schools, regardless of their point in their journey, hey, you're not in a place to be able to do that. Because for me, that is such a basic strategy. It could have been any strategy, really. But the outcome was achieving a level of attention and um, pro-social behaviours that we were trying to achieve that we believe every child is capable of, whatever their school and context of that school. So have a basic kind of level of expectation that we, we, we can expect, regardless of the school, but don't blanket apply every strategy uh, because that might not work either. Okay, yeah, I think, I think that, that kind of plays plays a part in kind of because last week sorry I had a, a session on on culture by design and it was on the intentional uh, approaches to shape behavior and drive accountability and I do feel like um in that conversation you know uh, uh, loads of stuff kind of came up but one of them was obviously you want um positive behavior support um, you want to set set the standards uh, across across your school. You want to be driven by data, and I feel like you've mentioned some of this stuff as well. Um, and I do think that one thing is obviously you want to be as as a leader, you want to be leading that cultural change. But obviously, as someone that leads like three different schools, you want to lead the cultural change, but you want to be obviously um, uh, how should I say? more specific to what that particular school needs uh, in, in their yeah. journey. Um, do you ever look back at, let's say, for example, you look at Forest Gate now, do you ever look back at, let's say, you look at, let's say, Cumberland now, uh, and you're like, okay, this school is two years behind Forest Gate, or this, this is exactly where they are, and this is what they need to do to get to there, and you, you kind of see the same journey. And is it always, I guess my question is, is it always clear-cut like is it always smooth sailing or is there sometimes bumps in the road like that you didn't expect because like Forest Gate might have a completely different culture to let's say Cumberland for example there's always bumps in the road Omar you know that it's never ever ever smooth sailing um but what I would say is you you're constantly learning from the mistakes that you make and like Cumberland had the benefit of hindsight from Forest Gate uh, which was which was great, and also a fa a fantastic team who led that change. Um, and I had the 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 pleasure of kind of uh, being a part of that on the side. Um, and th like the things that we embedded at Forest Gate, you 
uh, we were able to reflect and be like, you know what, we do it differently. If we were to do it again, we'd do it differently. And and we were able to apply those kind of lessons from hindsight at Cumberland. You're, you're saying two years, Cumberland has um, caught up with Forest Gate and they are very, very close. So Forest Gate should be scared. And I am a little bit, um, but conflicted because, I, uh, you know, I'm invested in Cumberland as well. Um, but it's... It, it's an improvement journey and I think what what makes the difference is recognizing that where we make those errors recognizing those errors in in implementation and being like okay you know what we did it wrong there or it could have been better there how can we fix that and get the right people on the right bus to make those changes um in a different context yeah um so so do you this question i mean i think i know the answer to it to be honest but my question is do you revisit uh teaching learning like cpd ones that you've gone through before i'm guessing the answer will be yes um and so the question really is is how do you do this without teachers feeling like oh it's this session again like i've been through this before like i know this already yeah so we do um it's important to revisit it uh, uh we've sequenced the cpd program like a curriculum so, you know, I mentioned the half an hour short, sharp sessions every other week. Um, they're like lessons, aren't they? They're, they're focused on something really specific. So that's your core knowledge that we've, we've identified over the course of a half term, a term, a year. It's, I've applied principles of a curriculum in this CPD program. Um, so we've identified core knowledge. So that would include things like the behavioral instructional routines that I mentioned. Um, it would include things like um, we've got a huge focus on shed loads of practice or independent practice, what that looks like um, in a, within a subject. Once you've identified those those components of core knowledge, like in any curriculum, you're meant to sequence and revisit that. And so our programme um, tries to achieve that principle. We sequence certain strategies or um, components of our teaching and we revisit that over time, um, but in a different forum. So if I've done a really basic session on cold call, like I mentioned, I might revisit that later on as a part of another strategy, which cold call is needed for, but I know that I'm revisiting the expectations of a cold call. Um, I've looked hard at how we've sequenced that. And, you know, I look at it like a midterm plan where I've built up that knowledge um, within a half term and in a term, leaving space for tackling emerging needs as well, because it's important to be reactive as well as kind of deliberately plan ahead. And then uh, the last thing that, I've, that I say, the fourth component of that is personalising it. So I might not necessarily do loads of work on cold calling at Forest Gate because I know that's an embedded strategy, but I will really hit home with that at UTCN, for example, because it might be a lot newer to them establishing those basics. So once I've kind of established those core curriculum principles as part of my CPD curriculum, um, I've got my teaching and learning hype men, my influencers, who will go out and capture great examples, give those nudges to their teams, uh, celebrate success early and often, pick up issues early and often and, and, and tackle them. They're helping me embed that practice, which I mentioned was a really key and a high frequency error, um, the hardest to achieve in a school because uh, we get busy with loads of different things. Um, but in, in, in doing that, what they're doing, those captures that I mentioned, 
what they're doing is they're not just sharing great videos and saying, hey, aren't we amazing? Aren't we great? Uh, but they're very intelligently picking out the components of what makes it good. So it's really quite specific. And those are granular things that we would provide feedback on. So, for example, we've got an I Love How series. Um, you know, I Love How Omar uh, stands at the front and centre of the classroom and calls for the attention of the class with a strong voice. I Love How Omar um, is being seen looking. So they're picking out really specific or concrete granular things that is that make this um, it's quite developmental in doing so, but it also means in, in, in doing that task, that activity itself, it's practicing how to give really good granular feedback. And it means when we do want to step in and perfect practice that might be slightly imperfect, we can do so in a meaningful way. And that's where we have live coaching, which is another really key part of our strategy to embed practice. Um, and I know you've had a session on live coaching, but essentially uh, we applied the principles of hospital residency, which I read in Get Better Faster by Paul Bambrix and Toyo, which I highly recommend if if listeners haven't read it. And I only wished I'd read it as a mentor um, or when I was training back in the day, because it would have made me a much more practitioner, better practitioner, faster. And what he does is he likens hospital residency performing their first surgeries um, to what we might do in the classroom um, and he mentions like two premises that they base their work on premise number one um, a patient's life is of the utmost importance in medical care so a teaching doctor they can keep that sacred but but um, whilst also training residents by simply stepping in when needed and the second premise um, is of accelerated development. So by stepping in and coaching in the moment, the experienced doctors are able to deliver more feedback to their residents and the residents get better faster. They fix their mistakes, they become experts quickly. And I guess on the operating table, that's not a luxury, but a necessity. And what Bambrick Santoyo says is, uh, what if we in teaching had to honour those same two premises of residency? And it, it ends up looking really similar, actually. So premise number one, actually, a student's life is of the utmost importance. And, you know, we can keep that sacred whilst also training our teachers by stepping in when needed. And the second premise remains the same, our accelerated development. By stepping in and coaching in the moment, we're able to deliver more feedback to our teachers. Our teachers are able to get better faster. They can fix their mistakes. They become experts quickly. And surely when it comes to students learning, it's not a luxury but a necessity. So we've worked really hard on, you know, understanding this, this, these premises, these, these ideas. Um, we quote the, that famous quote from Dylan William, every teacher needs to improve, not because they're not good enough, but because they can be even better. And it is this spirit by which we live coach. Um, and we've worked hard to build a culture where people believe, you know what, this teacher is really invested in my development and they're here to support me and we're celebrating each other, we're, we're eliciting the brilliance in each other by doing so. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I just wanted to say that Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 G uh, GCSEs catered to the needs of all learners regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. Um, so, 
first thing, I was actually going to ask the question about um, how, so, so beforehand you mentioned that uh, the way you know that you run a good CPD session um, is is how well it's implemented. And I was going to ask, how do you know how well it's implemented? But I think you've kind of answered that with live coaching. Now, as you said, we did actually speak about um, live coaching before and it was slightly controversial. Um, this was with um, Shof when he joined the show. Um, could you just quickly run through how live working, uh, sorry, live coaching works? Yeah, so it, when you see something that, right, for example, let me give you, paint a scenario for you, Omar, yeah? I walk into your classroom, you're teaching, um, you're, you're a great teacher, Omar, you know, um, and I notice, right, Monday period one, you are at your computer getting your lesson up, the kids have come in, and um, they're slightly rowdy, they're just chatting, they're sitting down, and from your computer, I notice, uh, having walked into your lesson, um, you call for their attention. You say, right, guys, settle down, take a seat. I'm about to do the register. And uh, I notice after you said that, the students in your class kind of half settle down. Um, you know, the ones at the front, they sit down and they're listening. Uh, but there's a few at the back who have carried on talking, one still kind of wandering around at the back. And I think as, a, as the observer here, I think, you know what, if Omar just did one tiny thing, one tiny change in his practice there, you would have achieved what you wanted to achieve there um and all you had to do i notice as the observer is kind of move from behind your computer screen to the front center of your class and with a strong voice call for their attention i know if you just did that tiny tweak in your practice um the whole class would have paid attention straight away you would in a couple of seconds as opposed to however many minutes it was taking you in that moment Okay, so I've got two options there. I could either make a note of it on my clipboard or in my book or a mental note and then figure out a time when both of us are free to give you that feedback retrospectively. Okay, that could be, you know, period seven later on that day because that's when we're free or even the next day. Um, and what would happen is you, Omar, would carry on perhaps continuing in that practice every lesson thereafter okay so calling for their attention taking a bit more time realizing they're not listening then moving yourself having a go at a kid giving them a reminder whatever it is and you would do that period two in the big in the in the beginning of the lesson period three period four all the way up until period seven until it's becoming quite an embedded part of your practice a, a habit if you like a bad one or what i could do my second option is um tell you there and then Okay, stepping in the moment. Uh, so I could come to you and really quickly say, hey, Omar, why don't you try that again by standing at the front center of your class and use a strong voice. And then you'd say to me, great idea, miss. Let me have a go at that. And you'd move from your computer, go to the front center of your classroom and in a strong voice, call for the attention of the class. And then you will notice in that moment, that class pay attention very quickly to you. Suddenly you feel the success of your adjusted practice and because you feel that success because you've seen the improvement in your in your adjusted practice now you are more likely to call for attention in that way as opposed to your previous way every lesson thereafter um, until by the end of the day it, it's become a habit and it's a much better th one than what you previously did so that's essentially how I uh, the, the premise of life coaching now m that feedback to you Omar didn't suggest to you and shouldn't suggest to you that you're a terrible teacher and you should think about another day job. It tells you that 
hey, it's a tiny aspect of your practice that actually you probably should be a little bit more um, attuned to and conscious of. And now you are. Um, and it's not a big deal. And if we've got the culture right in our school, um, and that's a constant, we're striving for that all the time, you know me telling you that actually Tamina's invested in my development here and um, and I know that I will be better as a result of it, even in that tiny aspect of my practice. So that's essentially life coaching um, or, or the idea or the, the kind of the spirit behind life coaching. Um, and we, we provide lots of training on how to do that really well. So in the book that it's based on, it, they go over the criteria of effective um, kind of action steps, they call it. So the, the three that they give the criteria on, and, and this is what we base a lot of our training on, um, and I think it's applicable to any kind of feedback, whether it's live coaching, whether it's feedback in a line management meeting, whether it's feedback um, after a lesson observation, which we don't do anymore, whatever it is, I think it's quite applicable. And those three are, is that feedback, is it observable and practicable? Is it the highest leverage action you could ask that teacher to perform? So I wouldn't, for example, say to you, Omar, are your, your learning objectives are completely wrong. That would derail your whole lesson. I've picked the highest leverage thing in that moment, you moving from your teacher desk to the middle, the front centre of your classroom as the highest leverage thing that, that's going to move you on. Um, and the third criteria, is it bite-sized enough that the teacher could accomplish it in a week? And I know you could do that um, with, with me not there, etc. Um, and so that, yeah, so we do a lot of training around, does your feedback meet that criteria? Um, because if it doesn't, it's probably not the best, it could be better. And then we've got like several strategies that range from least invasive, so like a whisper with the teacher, to slightly more where you might want to step in completely and model a skill or a technique, obviously. And again, we, we discuss and we practice which strategies we would apply to which uh, kind of teacher, practice, context, situation. And that is a spinning plate. It is every week, at every level, as often as we can, because we're determined to get the quality of feedback right. And it's really important to establish that. Um, thank you for that. I just want to... Uh, so last time, again, when, when this was discussed, um, there was a few people that were saying they feel like if someone comes into your classroom and you're a teacher... Um, they feel like it might uh, belittle the teacher in that particular circumstance. Mm. What would you say to those people? Because, I mean, I think you've kind of cleared it up a little bit, but what would you say to the people that said that? Um, well, I, I think, number one, starting off with that premise, like if you believe that, if you've bought into or you agree that, you know what, um, a student's learning is of the utmost importance and my accelerated development I need to get better faster not because I'm not good enough but because I can be even better we our actions need to um need to emulate that so that's number one I, I always go back to that that premise where live coaching is done well to the students it should look like team teaching okay and to the teacher who is being live coached they believe that this person is genuinely invested in my development. They're eliciting the brilliance in within me and they want me to get better. Um, and and uh, for it to be done well, both parties do well. So uh, 
as a coach, right, it's that, that it's a really awkward thing to do if those conditions aren't correct. It's really difficult. And when we first did it across our schools, um, and I remember having those feelings, it was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to step in because I was really worried about um, m the teacher feeling undermined. I didn't want to upset them like that. Even though I believed in, in the spirit behind what we were doing, I believed in those premises. Um, but from the teacher point of view, again, uh, number one, they might feel undermined, fine. Uh, but if they if they received it in the spirit with which it was intended, it all becomes re so much easier. So Omar, if you said to me, if you live coached me and said, hey, Tamina, did you, you notice, um, you, you, a little bit more invasive, yeah? So you, you jumped into my lesson and you said, oh, miss, um, I noticed that you asked for silence for this next task, but some students are, are talking. My reaction to that is equally important here, right? So I could either be really awkward about it and think, oh my, he's trying to derail this lesson and he totally thinks I'm a rubbish teacher and he's completely undermined me and my reaction would really show that. Or I could pick on pick up on that cue from you, having believing that you are invested in my development and you believe my students' learning is of the utmost importance. And I might re react and say something like, um, oh, thank you so much, sir. I didn't notice that. Um, and then attend to that, what you've just picked out. Okay. And to the students, that looks like team teaching to them. Two teachers helping each other out, teaching the class. But between us, me and you, we are both invested in that, those students' learning. And between us, we've now made that teaching, my teaching and their learning, slightly better in doing that. Now, that's that's the utopia here. That's what we want to achieve, right? But if your feedback to me was a bit rubbish, Omar, it wouldn't achieve that. And so I talk about spinning plates a lot. And on the side then, the training for you to give me good feedback like that is really important. And that's an ongoing endeavor at every level. Um, but also the training of uh, and building that culture of me genuinely believing and acting, my actions showing that, that you, hey, I, I get that. And you know what? I'm appreciating you stepping in because as a teacher, my cognitive load is so high in that moment that I, I am going to miss out sometimes on a, a student um, not paying attention when I'm asked to pay attention or whatever it is. And I'm grateful for the teacher in the classroom who's picked up on that. And I've, I've done a bit of a, I've gone back into a bad habit of mine. And I'm glad you pointed that out because now I'm more conscious of it. That is what I want to achieve and what we're trying to constantly. Okay, uh, thank you for that. Um, okay, I, I got one question myself and I do have a question here in the comments from Tom. Uh, my question is, okay, let's say in that particular scenario, your executive head teacher, okay, free, free, you're you're in charge of looking over free schools. I come into your classroom. I'm I'm just the head of physics, right? And I say the com I I I I I live coach you. Um, how would how would is that okay in 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 that particular scenario? And um, how would you feel in that particular case? What would you live coach on, Omar? It depends on what it is. Let's say, let's say it was some. You, it's the same thing. It's the exact same scenario. Some students are chatting um, when you've told them to be silent, and I've said, "Oh, thank you very much, Miss. Fantastic stuff going on here." Um, but th those students are still talking, and, and it's really important you told them that they need to be working silently. Um, yeah how how would uh, how would that be received? I guess. Um, 
in the same way that I said, because um, I'm going to bring it back to those same premises, right? Uh, a student's learning is of the utmost importance here, not my ego or my mm -hmm. role and what that's attached to. And the second premise, accelerated development. However, I could be teaching for two years or 20 years. There are still things that mistakes that I'm making in my practice. And I need someone to point it out to me, especially if I'm um, so used to making mis uh, um, uh, certain habits that I've become really practiced at, which might not be the best in, in what I'm trying to achieve. Um, I think sometimes in teaching, we it's, it's in many ways, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it is quite an egotistical profession. We are the centre of the classroom. We, we like to speak. We, we do like to hear the, so the, the sound of our own voices. We do like to talk. Um, and in, in some schools, the, the, the culture is such that if someone steps into your classroom, and I used to work in a school like this, you would look at them like, how very dare you? This is my space. You didn't ask me permission to do that. And actually, we, we do need to move ourselves from the centre a little bit. It is about the students and any space where students are learning, they are at the centre and we, are, we need to be in a space where we are able to receive that feedback um, and that will make us better in our craft. I was reading this really interesting article the other day a uh, very long article, but fascinating, called Personal Best by Atul Gawande, uh, where it talks about, you know, top athletes and singers have coaches um, and, you know, should you. And it's basically from the point of view of a surgeon who's been doing the job for, for many years and who reached their peak, if you like, got really good at what they did. And they discuss actually they plateaued in their performance or their practice. They weren't getting any better after a number of years. And in teaching, it, it is kind of the same, isn't it? We, I think there's, um, we plateau after the first three to five years. And actually, this idea of continual improvement, we need to look hard and honestly about how we are achieving that. Um, Live coaching is a strategy to do that. It's not the strategy. I wouldn't, you know, it's it's one of a number of things or layers in our trust that we we utilize. Um, and getting it right is is I think it's it's worthy enough to invest in um, because I've seen the impact that it's had um, across the schools that we've done it in for a few years now. Yeah, um, I just want to bring you back to the question that Tom asked uh, on the comments. It says, how do you ensure that the impact of live coaching is maintained when the coach has left the room? Uh, so we've, it's a good question. Um, we've actually moved towards, um, so we tweak it and kind of try to perfect it every year. So next year, what we're doing, um, our deputy CEO has really aligned the, the follow through of uh, of what we were trying to achieve here so every every teacher will have a coach um who will visit them at the moment it's kind of a little bit been a bit ad hoc if you like we walk in we might live coach they'll receive um that feedback in um in their email um we use google forms in real time they will receive it which is good you know you can act on it immediately but no one will necessarily come back to see if you've improved that um specifically I will receive it on a general whole school um, forum 
and um, I'd pick up on general trends, but we could be much more kind of granular in our follow through. So what we're now looking to looking at is a system where on a subject specific level, I will have an English specialist who is who is um, assigned to me as a coach and they would visit me one week, um, live coach me and um, they would come back and see if I have perfected that practice, achieved that action step that they provided me the following week and thereafter. And they're assigned to me for the term or the year, uh, depending on emerging needs. And so that kind of, that um, securing success, that loop that we're trying to achieve, um, we're doing so on a much more meaningful level. Because number one, it's a loop. They're coming back and they're seeing if I've achieved that. And number two, they're a subject expert. So I know they're going to be able to give me feedback on on my subject. And that's going to be really meaningful for me. Yeah, that, that sounds very good. Uh, I'm going to move on away from the topic of, of, of life coaching now. Uh, my question is, what does, because obviously our, our whole kind of show is on embedded practice. So what does embedded practice mean in the context of teaching and learning and why is it important? In the context of teaching and learning, embedded practice means doing what you are meant to do or doing what we say we do uh, all the time, every day, so that it is improving the outcomes of our students, which is why we're doing that thing. Uh, To achieve that is really, really difficult because lots of other things get in the way, um, like... um, a sudden national pand- uh, worldwide pandemic or Ofsted suddenly coming in or mock season where we're drowning under marking you know, impending deadlines. All of those things that we can't necessarily control do get in the way of keeping the main thing about the main thing, which is perfecting our practice in the classroom to impact the outcomes of our students. Um and so it's really important, right? Uh, and there's, I've discussed kind of several ways to do that, but it is a bit of a spinning plates approach because where you stop doing one of those things, um, something else falls down. So I've talked about um, designing your CPD, but affecting things on a structural level if you can. So that's one spinning plate, if you like. Uh, where you're receiving um, data, data in the form of feedback, in the form of your lesson visits, in the form of those um, videos that your teaching and learning team are sharing with you, you're constantly using that data to inform your CPD that you've designed, right? That's a spinning plate. If you stop doing that, that's the quality of the design of your CPD will be affected. The other spinning plate I mentioned was your hype men team. You're assembling that teaching and learning influencer group who will capture the great practice, but also pick up on things that aren't quite working and um, and do something about it. OK, if if they stop doing those things, um, that's going to affect embedding practice. That's going to affect, therefore, the design of your CPD. You can't, as the person leading it, do those things yourself at all. It's absolutely impossible. Your hype men, your team are able to do that for you because they've got leverage in their own teams. They've got influence um, and they can be in lots of places at once. Um, You stop doing that, things fall down. Okay. Um, the, the training on good feedback I mentioned today, you know, the making sure it's bite-sized, concrete, observable, highest leverage. If I don't train my team who are providing that coaching or that feedback on 
those aspects on the criteria that makes feedback meaningful, they will end up giving rubbish feedback. They will end up giving feedback that is not bite-sized, not actionable, um, not the highest leverage. As a result of that, bad feeling will uh, incur. People will be demotivated. They will be feeling left um, disillusioned, um, not buy into the spirit through which we're trying to do these things. Their, their practice won't become better as a result of it. Um, so you can see how that spinning plate is really important, the training on the how. Um, monitoring, so I haven't spoken about monitoring, but all of this all of this kind of um, feedback, the what you're getting from your team, um, the embedding practice, the training on the how, all of that is data for you if you are leading teaching and learning. That data you are monitoring constantly because you're using that that data to evaluate and act on. Um, so, for example, mid-year, uh, I'll give you an example. After the pandemic, after those two lockdowns, we came back. Live feedback is a key strategy we use across our schools, giving feedback in the moment in the classroom, feedback that is pegged to the curriculum that we've established for our students. Um, we don't take books home retrospectively, Mark. We do it in the moment in class. Um, it was quite well established at Forest Gate. You know, I wasn't really worried about it. When we came back after the lockdowns, I suddenly noticed that none of our teachers were doing it simply because we were completely out of practice. It wasn't part of our habit, our routines anymore. And I quickly realised, actually, we need to retrain. We need to get back and establish those habits again. So being able to have that freedom and that structure where we can evaluate and act quickly with emerging needs is another spinning plate. But I can't do that if I don't have the data to inform um, my acting quickly on that. Um, so all of those things, I think I've listed about six there. Those are spinning plates. It's a constant uh, endeavour to achieve. And if one drops, uh, the others will be impacted. Um, and so doing that, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Um, but it's about identifying all your touch points through which you can do that. Um, and so I'll, I'll mention that and then I'll stop. So like, what, what do I mean by touch points? Touch points are opportunities in your week, days, months, half terms, whatever it is, where you can communicate and affect change and culture and, and, and expectations at scale. Okay, so I always do this exercise in where I kind of talk about leading, teaching and learning. How many touch points can you identify in your school um, where you can affect change like that or communicate what you expect? Um, you've got, I can list about 15 in one school, for example. You've got things like your, I don't know, you might have a, a briefing, staff briefing, first thing on a Monday morning. That's a touch point for you to affect change or establish those expectations or give those nudges that we mentioned earlier. Um, you've got department meetings, you've got leadership group meetings, you've got middle leader meetings, you've got mentor meetings, all of those kind of forums, you can establish standard items where you're getting people to talk about the right things. You've got nudge emails. I mentioned those WhatsApp groups. That's another touch point. Um, if you've got kind of certain publications, teaching and learning publications, I know lots of schools have that. That's a touch point. Staff bulletins, a touch point. Uh, a midweek email, that's a touch point. Um, there's loads that if you identified correctly and you deliberately planned for those, those are all forums through which you can spin those plates um, and not run the risk of dropping one of them and then other things being affected. Okay, thank you very much for that. We've just gone slightly over. 
I was actually going to ask a question to say, can a hype man be too hyped? But um, I'll, I'll skip past that never, for now. Never, Omar. <laughs> this right. Um, thank you very much for the discussion today. We've gone over so many things. We went over culture, went over shared language, went over aligned vision. We went over twilights. Um, we've gone over motivation for teachers and for students. And I just want to say thank you, everyone that's come and joined. Thank you to Mina for joining the conversation. And I do wish you guys a very good end to your weekend. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.